Amen. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The question that we're going to be asking this morning is, what do you value? As human beings, we learn very quickly what things are valuable and what things are not valuable. My children have already developed their own economy for what they deem valuable and what they deem not so valuable. The valuable things to them usually have sugar in them, typically, and a lot of chocolate, usually. The things that are not so valuable are usually green. Now, they've come to understand what money is a little bit more, and so green has a different connotation now, but, you know, broccoli and things like that, eh, still bad. Um, but once they evaluate, uh, evaluate their own value system, they start making decisions based on that value system. And that's not necessarily bad. As we come to like, teach them things, potty training and things like that, uh, you start to use their value system against them and as, as motivation for doing those things. But as they get older and the more they grow, you learn pretty quickly the things that they value high enough. And they kind of incorporate them into their ladder of things that they like and things that they don't like. And as we get older, we, we incorporate more things into our value system. As an example, things that have always been there for me, pie, always has been pretty high on my system and still holds a pretty prominent place in my value system. Broccoli, still pretty low for me, still down there. But some things are added and begin to uh, take a higher precedence. And some things begin to work their way lower down the ladder, as it were. And it, so it's material goods. Those kinds of things come into play. Money, houses, vehicles hold value to us. But also immaterial things. Things like love and friendships. Our reputation grows more important to us. Our time. Our health also holds value to us. And these things become more and more important to us the more we realize how rare they are, how precious they are, how quickly they can disappear. There are millions of things, more things than we could possibly name, that go into this value system. And this value system that we have that develops over time is really a complex formula that we don't even really think about, but it's a complex formula that helps us make decisions that we come about every day, decisions on where we spend our time, decisions on what kinds of foods to eat. Everything that we see goes into our brain and near instantly goes through this matrix of things that we value and comes out with a decision on the other end. Come up with an answer of whether you need this thing or not. And most things that we come to are near instant, but some things take a lot of time to think about. We have to see where does it fall in our, in our value scale. But the point is that we learn to value things, and by this value system, we make decisions, important decisions, complex decisions, life-altering decisions, moving to a new state, taking a new job, getting married, having children, all kind of, where to go to school, all kinds of things. Jesus has been explaining to the crowds in Matthew chapter 13, and he's also been explaining to his disciples about how the kingdom of heaven is received 
by the world. In the first parable, some hear the gospel and they initially receive it and respond to it, but many fall away from following Jesus for one reason or another, be it persecution or troubles of various kinds or the deceit of riches. The reason we learned that they do this is in the following parables where we see that there are two different seeds of people in the world, those sown by the work of God and those sown by Satan. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to hone in on how his children receive the kingdom of heaven, how they receive him. What does it look like when a child of God receives the news of the kingdom of heaven? How does it work? How do they value what they see and what they found? So I'm asking you this morning to start taking an internal survey of your own value system. What are the things that you value? The value system that you've developed over the years in your life, whether you're 5 or 95, what are the things that you really value? What are the things that you really love? What are the things that are really exciting to you? The things that are really important to you? When you make decisions, what are most frequently the things that factor into the equation when you make those decisions? With that in mind, let's read our scripture this morning. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for clarity and wisdom as we seek to understand this text and apply it to our lives. I pray for the hearts of every man or woman, every child in this room, that as we think about, as we hear what it means to truly esteem Christ, what it really means to value the kingdom of heaven, pray that you would convict our hearts, show us the places where we have allowed other things to creep in unnoticed. Pray that you would expose those this morning through the hearing and understanding of your word. Open our ears that we may hear, open our eyes that we may see, and open our heart that we may follow. In Jesus' name, amen. In the previous parables that Jesus told the crowds, we walked away with the message that the kingdom of heaven was going to, be, going to come to people in the form of a message. That's what we heard in verse 19, where the Son of Man is sowing, Jesus says, the word of the kingdom. He's sowing a message. He is sowing news of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. We call that today the gospel. The Son of Man is sowing it, and that is how the kingdom of heaven is going to come to people. Some people are going to receive that message, and they're going to bear fruit. And others are going to hear that message. They're going to have it maybe even for a brief little moment, and then it's going to be taken away. But the point is that the kingdom of heaven is going to come to people in the form of news, a proclamation. 
But then we also learn in the next few parables, in the parables just after that, that the kingdom of heaven is also going to experience some delay before it comes to fulfillment. So before we think about uh, the kingdom of heaven coming in fullness, Jesus tells us in the next parables, well, there's going to be some delay. Those seeds are going to grow up over time next to Satan's kingdom. They're going to grow up in parallel. Jesus calls the other kingdom that's going to grow beside it the sons of the devil. So it's going to come in the form of news and it's going to take some time. Now, this is a significant difference of the proclamation of the kingdom of God from the way the Jews would have understood the kingdom coming in the first century when Jesus is preaching. You have to understand that. Wrap your minds around it for just a second. As many of you well know by now, the thinking of the day was that the Messiah was going to come in and he was going to bring almost immediately with him an apocalyptic kingdom. Think of how we think of the book of Revelation. The way we think of the book of Revelation, more or less, is how a first century Jew would have thought of the Messiah coming in. Well, that's the kind of kingdom he is going to be bringing right now. So stop for just a second and follow the trail of breadcrumbs, if you will, through this chapter. The kingdom of heaven is not going to come to people initially in an apocalyptic way, but as news that they will receive and bear fruit. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the kingdom of heaven is going to grow and flourish alongside Satan's kingdom for a while before the apocalyptic kingdom finally does come, what we think of when we think of the book of Revelation. But what does it look like when someone legitimately receives this news? What does that look like? When you can see that someone has legitimately received the news of the kingdom of heaven. Well, the two parables that we're looking at this morning are answering that question for us. What does it look like when someone truly believes in the good news of the kingdom? And I want to ask three questions to help us understand the text before we apply it. Um, really, two questions of, uh, of understanding the text and one question of really applying it to our own lives. They're not going to appear on the screen behind me. They're just very simple questions. The first is, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of heaven? Uh, I want to spend some time on this because it's been a while since we dealt with this topic. What, is he, what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of heaven? He says it a lot. It's stated a lot throughout Matthew, this phrase, kingdom of heaven. It occurs twice in these parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls in verse 45. And if you just glance around, you'll see that he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven eight times in chapter 13 in Matthew. He uses it 32 times in the book of Matthew as a whole. But when you and I hear the phrase kingdom of heaven, I think most of us think of a place we go when we die. That word heaven gives us that signal in our brain that immediately is translated into the place where we go when we die. If I were to go around and just do a survey of everybody here, what is heaven? Most of you would come to an answer. It may be eloquent or it may not be, but it would be something to the effect of the place where we go when we die. Most of us would be thinking that. 
After all, we sing hymns, don't we, when we all get to heaven? What a day of rejoicing that will be. It will one day be. It's a place that I go to when I die, and on that day, there will be great rejoicing. And that's not altogether wrong. I mean, heaven is a place that you go, your soul goes, when you die, before the Lord returns. Is it not? Of course it is. It's true. And sometimes the Bible even speaks of heaven in this way in different terms. Jesus says, your Father who is in heaven. So he, he basically says it's a place where God dwells. All right, It's a realm, if you will, where God dwells. The thief on the cross doesn't specifically use the word heaven there, but he says, today you will be with me in paradise, which we relate to the term heaven. We take it to mean that he's going to be with God, that his soul, he's going to die, but his soul is going to be with Jesus in heaven. Paul even says to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, meaning that that's where we go when we die, to be with the Lord. He dwells in heaven, therefore we take it to mean he's in heaven. So we don't throw out all the old hymns. It's for good reason that we think of heaven as a place where we go when we die, but we just we cannot stop there. There are times where Jesus uses the word heaven, and he obviously means a lot more than that. Most of the time, it's when heaven is used in the phrase, kingdom of heaven. Jesus describes it in this passage as something that can be obtained. Think about this for a second. Something that can be obtained in the here and now. That you can actually have it right now. You can possess it. You can be a part of it in the here and now. I'm going to look in the, in the parables that we're looking at this morning. Both of these men go and sell everything they own. They make a here and now choice, and they go and sell everything that they own to possess it. But that doesn't make sense if heaven or the kingdom of heaven is only a place where we go when we die. What if they actually possessed in the here and now if they have to wait till they die to possess it? That doesn't make any sense. Now, where Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven for his Jewish, primarily Jewish audience, Luke, refer, Luke, Luke prefers the phrase kingdom of God, which for a Gentile audience probably helps us just a little bit more. In fact, just a few parables earlier where Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed, uh, Luke quotes Jesus as saying the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And there are also a few times in Matthew where Jesus will use kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven in consecutive sentences, virtually interchangeably. And so we know that there's virtually no difference between the phrase kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Matthew, being a Jew, writing to Jews, is probably not keen on just throwing around the term God uh, just haphazardly, whereas Luke, speaking to Gentiles, probably would not understand the phrase kingdom of heaven as well as the phrase kingdom of God. But the reason that I think this helps us is because when we hear the phrase kingdom of God, our minds don't necessarily think about a place where we go when we die. Instead, we start to think about a rule and a reign of God. We think of one who is on a throne. We think of one who reigns in authority, who has authority to make rules. It's the kingdom of God. It's God's kingdom. 
We may even think of people that belong to this king. That's part of what it means to be a kingdom, right? Is that you have a group of people that are subjects. So we think of people that belong to this king. Graham Goldsworthy in his book, Gospel and Kingdoms, defined the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of heaven. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's right now. So while you're here on earth, in the present day, if you are in Christ, you have moved kingdoms. You have transferred citizenship. God has done this in Christ. He has moved you from the realm, the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and He has literally moved you and placed you into the kingdom under the rule and reign of Him under the kingdom of His beloved Son. It is a here and now thing. So the way Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of heaven in these two parables is really in the way that we use the word salvation. Think of it in, the, in almost the same way, especially in these two parables, as we use the term salvation. Salvation is like a, a treasure that a man found while digging in a field. Salvation is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. He's speaking about God's kingdom as something that you can lay hold of at this very moment in the same way that you can have salvation at this very moment. Now, that has some difficulties too. Because I bet when I say the word salvation, most of the things, if I force you just for a second to think about a word association, a picture that comes to your mind, when you hear the word salvation, most of us are going to think of one of two images. The first is walking down an aisle when we're eight years old or so and telling the preacher that you believe in Jesus and then subsequently being baptized, maybe. The second is potentially for those theological people in the room being saved from sins. Salvation is being saved from sins. I, 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 I was saved and I was saved from sins. I was saved from hell. But there's a reason Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Forgiveness of sin is not all that happens in salvation. Forgiveness of sin is not all that happens in salvation. When Jesus illustrates that these men find these treasures, they not only find forgiveness of sin, they find reconciliation with the God of the universe. They find a totally new way of living. They find a new way of thinking. They find a transformation of their very nature to the core. They find something, as is evident in the parable, that is of greater value than anything else in the world. Imagine this picture with me. Just think about this image, if you can, in your mind. Imagine that all of us, you and I, we're not born in the kingdom of God. We're born outside. And we stumble upon the kingdom of God. 
We stumble upon its wall and its borders, and there's a window in the wall. And we can go up and we can look through this window, and we can see what citizens in the kingdom of heaven look like, how they act, what they do. We see them submitting to God's rule and His reign. We see them bowing down before Him. We see them worshiping Him. We see that they have a reconciled relationship with God. They're bowing down. They're living by His rule and His reign. They are living harmoniously with one another. There's no fighting. There's no, they have rakes and hoes in their hands and they're building and they're doing all kinds of work that they do inside the kingdom of God, but not us. We have rejected God's rule and His reign entirely. We are on the outside of this wall. We are looking in through the window at what's going on on the inside. See, before Christ, we are enemies of the state. Born outside the kingdom, not allowed in at all. In fact, if we were to somehow be able to breach the wall or sneak in under cloak and dagger, we would be killed on sight as enemies of the state. Think Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, he's in the temple, and all of a sudden there's God, and he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. You're going to kill me. Right on, on, at that moment, he realizes what he has done. He's breached the wall. So God, knowing that I could never walk through the gates as anything but an enemy of the state, God sent the king, his own son, out of the kingdom of heaven and into the domain of darkness, to use Paul's words, where you and I live. There he suffered God's own wrath that you and I deserve so that after his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead, you and I can walk through the gates of the kingdom of God, not as enemies of the state, but as sons and daughters and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that happens by virtue of the faith that we place in Christ based on his atoning sacrifice on our behalf, that it was enough. That I can walk through the gates now. And I'm not going to be shot on sight. That I'm not going to be sentenced to death. But that I'm actually going to be welcomed at the table as a son or daughter. When salvation is rightly understood, it is one bundle of gifts. Whereby we not only receive forgiveness... We not only find forgiveness, we find citizenship in an entirely new kingdom under an entirely new ruler, under the reign of God who wants to completely and totally transform you from the inside out, transform the way you think about things, transform the things you value, transform everything about you, leave no stone unturned. And so if you are in Christ... Your life is now one long process whereby God peels away the filth of the domain of darkness that you have brought into the kingdom of God. And He does that through giving you the gift of repentance of sin. 
so that you can, you can completely embody an entirely new way of living. That process will continue until the day we die or until Christ comes back, whichever one comes first. But the result is that we have an entirely new set of values. An entirely new set. The old ones are, are transferred completely out, kicked totally out, and we have an entirely new set of values from top to bottom. But as for now, not only is he peeling away the domain of darkness, but he has sent us out of the kingdom of heaven and back into the domain of darkness where we are sharing with others what has happened to us. That our value system is being completely changed, transformed. And there's things in my value system that I know don't belong there. I struggle, though, to weed those out. But by His power, that's what He's doing in me and through me. But what we are now, we are now ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We don't go back into the kingdom, the domain of darkness, and continue our dark ways and continue to be darkness in darkness. That's not, no, that's not what's happening. We are now ambassadors. The kingdom of heaven goes with us wherever we go, wherever we walk, it's there with us. This is what these men find in the pearl and in the treasure. The man digging in the field, the man searching for pearls, they found this whole package. They found a complete and total transformation. They have found salvation. They have found new citizenship. They have found a restored relationship with God. They have found forgiveness of sin. They have found a new way to live. Some people will tell you in this parable, they found Jesus. That's not entirely different from what I'm saying. In Jesus, we have all of that. That's what they found. Do you understand, though, that there is no such thing as forgiveness of sin apart from citizenship in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as forgiveness of sin apart from citizenship in the kingdom of God. Our culture, you'll find, desperately wants forgiveness of sin without citizenship in the kingdom of God. They do not want to kneel before the throne. But they want to know they are accepted. In fact, you'll find that even within our own church. Even within our own hearts. I want to be accepted. I want to be liked. I want to be encouraged and comforted. I don't want to have to kneel before a throne. I don't want to have to submit to his rule and his reign. If you want forgiveness of sin, then you are also saying that you are open to the Lord invading every aspect of your life. Changing every single thing about you. And if you want forgiveness, but you don't want to submit to his rule, you don't want Jesus. Because that is simply not what he is offering you. And perhaps if you thought that you had Jesus, but you are running away from his rule and his reign in every aspect of your life, it may be true 
that you were looking into the window for so long that you thought you were a part of the kingdom. But if you're still the same person, you have been for a number of years. Your value system is still the same that it's ever been. What you're seeing is not kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control creeping up in you and lustful desires and, and profanity and drunkenness and all of those things beginning to wane. If you're not seeing those things slowly be transformed, then I don't know what to tell you. But what it seems that you have found is not Christ. If our desires are simply to continue being, being rude and arrogant, being cantankerous and spiteful, and if I don't like you, I'm going to tell you what I think about you, if that continues to be our way of being, in what real way can we say our citizenship has been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son if it looks a lot like darkness? Second question I want you to want us to ask. What is the kingdom of heaven worth? What is the kingdom of heaven worth? Jesus tells us in this parable what the kingdom of heaven, heaven is worth based on the reaction of these two men. The first one you see in verse 44, he found it and he covered it up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The reaction he gives upon finding the treasure, this, this transfer into the kingdom, is, is first covered up. Now, we obviously don't take that to mean something that it doesn't. We don't take it to mean that we should cover up the kingdom or not talk about it. We shouldn't tell anybody. No, this is illustrating the point that Jesus is making. This man is jealous for it. He has to have it. He doesn't want anyone to get it before him. It's a foot race in this parable. He doesn't want someone else stumbling upon this treasure because he has to have it. It illustrates how badly he wants it. He wants it so bad that he sells everything. This is the same reaction, by the way, as the second man, the man in search of fine pearls. A common misunderstanding when someone reads this parable is that the kingdom of heaven could be earned. Now, all of us would say, well, I, don't, I don't interpret that way, I don't think it that way. Sometimes the way we act is that this parable can be, or the kingdom of heaven can be earned. If you look at this, these two parables, both men sell everything they own. Many, many books have been written about the poverty gospel. Not the prosperity gospel, but the poverty gospel. That what God really wants is for me to sell everything that I own, and then I am a real Christian. But you see, you just found another way to earn your way to salvation. I've sold everything that I own, and now God owes me salvation. It's not all that much different than the prosperity gospel, which says, if I really do believe, then God will surely bless me with riches. Well, no, not if the rest of the Bible has anything to say about it. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. Period. Actually, semicolon. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? Why wouldn't it be a result of my works? Why wouldn't it be a result of something that I do? So that no one can boast. 
There isn't a work that I could do that would put God in a position where he owes me passage into the kingdom of heaven. There's not a a checklist that I could go down. There's not anything that I could write to earn salvation. Instead, it is only by grace, through faith in Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. That's it. By showing both men in this parable running immediately and selling everything that they have to buy the field or the pearl. Jesus is making a statement about the value of the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that for a sinful man to find forgiveness of sin, citizenship in the kingdom of God, a restoration of a relationship with a creator, the creator of the world, that that's worth more than anything you could ever possess That if you lost everything in this world, but you gained salvation, there's a lot of things in this world you can lose. There's a lot of things that we in this room own. I don't care how much money you have. You're richer than at least 90% of the rest of the world. by virtue of the fact that you live in America. There's a lot of things that we can lose. And what he's saying is that if you've lost it all, you become the most destitute person in the world, but you have gained salvation, it is worth it. How is that true of me? Because your value system has been replaced Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He had a lot. And all of it is rubbish. Please understand what Jesus is describing here is not professional Christianity. He's not saying part of the kingdom is made up of the, these kinds of people, but the rest of the kingdom are content with just, you know, just simply going to church on Sunday and maybe a Christian bumper sticker and nativity scene on your mantle. He's saying this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. These are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Nothing less. It looks like citizens holding everything that they could possibly gain in the domain of darkness with an open hand. Think about that for just a second. Holding everything in the world with an open hand. Family. Spouses. Children. Everything with an open hand. This country with an open hand. Every possession you own, your house, everything with an open hand. Everything with an open hand. It looks like people of every nation, tribe, language, and tongue seeing an eternity of service to the God of creation as worth it compared to anything that they could have in their life. 
This is normal Christianity. Nothing short of it suffices for Christianity. Last question. Do you see the value of the kingdom of heaven? Do you see the value of the kingdom of heaven? See, Jesus' real point here is not just to say what the kingdom of heaven is worth, but to say how its citizens receive it. So after we see how much it's worth, we have to ask ourselves, do we see citizenship in God's kingdom, our own citizenship in God's kingdom like this? Do I see it like this? I've used this illustration before, and I'm going to use it again because I like it. But I think it's helpful. Baseball is one of my favorite sports. And some amens out there. Only a few, though. I get it. Uh, I've been to tons of games, and I've, I've yet to ever catch a foul ball. There's no way I can enumerate how many games that I've been to, but it's a lot. And I've never, I've never caught a foul ball. I've never caught a home run ball. I've never been given a ball by a player. I've never, I've never even, well, there was one time I came close. I almost got hit in the forehead with a ball as I was digging for a nacho. I'm not even kidding. Went right by me, whizzed by my ear. Landed in the lap of the girl right behind me as she was texting on her phone. Oh, I didn't know I had a ball. Ridiculous. I was pretty mad. I had to talk myself down off the ledge. Um, I was watching highlights of a Phillies game. This was several years ago. And there was two people in seats in the second deck on the first row of this Phillies game. It was a father and his daughter. Daughter couldn't have been more than three at the time. They were sitting on the first row of the second deck. And there was a ball hit into the second deck. And this father stood up and he grabbed the railing and he leaned over the railing and just one hand grabbed this ball in midair. And it showed on the Jumbotron, and every, all the fans saw the replay, and they were all cheering. He was turning around giving high fives to everybody that, he had, he, he, that was around him. This is in Philadelphia, by the way. Fans are not, sorry if you're from Philadelphia, but you're not known as being generous, good, fun-loving people. And so <laughs> they're all high-fiving him. They're all really excited. Everybody's pumped. He is, I can tell that this guy is just like me. He's never caught a ball in his life, and one has finally found him, and he has made this unbelievable catch. He just cannot believe his luck. And he turns to his daughter, who's in the seat next to him, and she's excited because daddy's excited. She has no idea what just happened, but she is really excited. And daddy is like, sits down and he's pumped and he hands her this ball and she takes a look at it and she throws it a mile over the rail. <laughs> she just rares, she threw it further than she's ever thrown anything in her life, I can tell you. So much so that it was just like being rubbed into his face as it flew out there. This is never coming back. There is no chance of you ever getting this ball again. And the dad is just like melts into his seat, you know. You see the dad and the daughter, they both held the same object. Both looked at the same object. Major League Baseball. 
But only one of them saw the value in it. The dad looks at this ball, and it's, it's more than just a major league baseball. There's rarity to it. He's been to thousands of games, and he's never gotten near one before. The ball that he's holding has pine tar on it. It's got real Major League Baseball player sweat on it. You can't quantify that. Nobody sells a vial of sweat for a Major League Baseball player, and that's gross. You wouldn't want that. But it's on a ball. Oh, my goodness. There's rarity to this ball. But to the daughter, it was round, and it was meant to be thrown. he's told her to do that in the front yard probably a thousand times. She's just doing what she's taught. There's no rarity there. When it comes to treasuring the salvation that the Lord has to offer, there are going to be some in this room that are in the first group and some that are in the second group. But my fear, especially in America, is that there are many who think there is a third category. A category that says, you know, I like Jesus. And I like what I find at church. The community there, the songs are okay. Preaching is a little long. But I put up with it in spite of the fact that in my mind, I would probably rather be on a lake, to be honest with you. But I found the kingdom of heaven, right? A category that says, of course I believe in God. But during the week, I don't really give much thought to it at all. How it impacts my life. I don't really read a ton of like what the scriptures have to say about anything. Really spend much time there at all. I don't really spend much time in, in prayer. What Jesus is presenting here is salvation from your sins and reconciliation with the God of the universe. And true citizens of the kingdom of heaven that find it respond in joy and a desire to sell everything they own if need be to have it. Becoming a citizen of the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean you're flawless. It doesn't mean that you're always operating at that kind of maximum joy that you never fall short of that. It means that you're continuing to grow in what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We call that sanctification. But let's fix in our minds clearly what we mean when we say sanctification. What does it mean when we are sanctified, when we grow in sanctification? It's growing in joy. That's what it is. You're growing in joy over the fact that you possess such a great treasure. You're growing in joy over the fact that you have this. What then keeps you from sin? That's most of the time when we say the word sanctification, most of the time think, well, that means I don't sin anymore or that I grow to not sin. Okay, let's flesh that out a little bit more. What causes you to get to a point where you sin less? What causes you in a moment to choose righteousness and holiness over sin? 
What chooses, what, what allows you to choose not gossiping over gossip? What allows you to choose going to bed instead of looking on the internet? What allows you to choose, make these distinctions between sin and righteousness? It's, it's not a bunch of hurdles that you put up in front of you. Because believe it or not, any hurdle that you put up between you and sin, you can easily tear down and climb over. It's the fact that your heart is set on a better joy. That you will have fulfillment somewhere else. That that screen doesn't give me the kind of fulfillment that God wants me to have. And that there's better fulfillment in Christ. That talking and sharing news and information and being the first one to break the news to someone... It's only momentary, that feeling of joy over that gossip. Tearing someone down in anger, that's only momentary. What Christ offers in putting that away is an eternal joy, an eternal fulfillment. Why? Because you and I both know that you make decisions based on what you value. Our kids make decisions on what they value out of the womb. We make decisions on what we value. Lots of things go into that, but it's still a decision based on what we value. Now, there may be times, if you offer my kids ice cream or green beans right at this very moment, we all know what they're choosing. But there are times where we say, you know what? I'm going to take the green beans. Even though I'd rather have ice cream. But what am I value? I'm going to value my health over momentary gain. It's all a system of value that we make choices. And what Christ is saying here is that those who have found salvation in the kingdom of heaven have their value system replaced and the values of the kingdom of heaven have taken over. And the decisions we make are based on the joy that we find there. So then what do we do with that? Well, first, let's refuse as Christians to make salvation about a decision. You cannot decide to value something. You can decide to have something. You cannot decide to value something. You put my kids in front of a bowl of ice cream and green beans. And you say, if you choose this one time, green beans over the ice cream, you won't go to hell and you'll have an eternity in heaven. They'll choose the green beans. They don't value the green beans. They despise the green beans like they always have. What we're seeing in salvation is someone whose value system has changed. We believe Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But what we choose to measure often as a church, as Christians, is simply the confession with the mouth. What about the belief in the heart? That's the value system we're talking about. 
It's been kicked out and transformed. How is it measured? How can we see in someone's chest? We can't see their heart, what they really value. Jesus tells us in the previous two parables what it looks like when someone values the kingdom of heaven. In fact, in this parable, it's measured by fruit. We see it as a product of their life. So we have to ask ourselves the really personal question. Are you growing in joy? Is there fruit of joy being produced every day in your life? Parents with your children, don't ask, have they decided? Ask if they value. Do they value the kingdom of heaven? See, their decisions, the decisions they make when they go to college and are far away from you or, or for us even just walking to the mailbox, okay? Those decisions that they make along the way when they're away from us are going to be determined by their value system. Ask, do they value the kingdom of heaven? See, they'll come back to repentance even if they stray. When they realize, yeah, the the ice cream does not fulfill me or satisfy me the way that this does. They'll come back in repentance because that is also the fruit of values that have been transformed by the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for us as a church, our hearts. We have nothing to gain by hiding. And I pray if any of us have realized maybe in the reading of these parables that we don't value the kingdom of heaven this way, bring us to salvation. Open that person's ears and heart to the gospel. Allow them to see value in Christ's death and resurrection. Father, all of us have fallen short today of properly valuing the kingdom of heaven, of properly valuing salvation that we have in Christ. We repent. Allow us to turn our hearts toward you in the deepest of affections and pursue the depths of our desires grounded in the work of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.